You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. All right, good. Well, uh, it's good to see you this morning. Um, we are going to uh, continue on in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, as we start this morning, I just want to ask you a question, and, and that is this. Have you ever been really desperate? Like, have you ever maybe even been in a real life or death situation, like literally your life was in danger? Or perhaps if not that, have you ever uh, been in just an intense season of suffering? A season that just seemed to go on and on, and you were uh, just really desperate for something to change? Or maybe if not you personally, have you ever uh, encountered someone who was really desperate themselves? Uh, I'm sure most of you, at least in one of those three scenarios, have had that happen. I know for me personally, I've been uh, on both sides before, both uh, being desperate myself, particularly with uh, having a kind of a hard season of life a while back, Um, but I've also been uh, up close to someone who was really desperate in a sort of life or death situation. Uh, For example, about 10 or 11 years ago, I was at Deer Creek State Park for a bachelor party for a friend of mine. And uh, we were, you know, there were about 10 of us guys. We were having a good time. We grilled out some food, and then we played a fun game of wiffle ball. And uh, then near the end, we decided, let's go swimming at the lake. And so uh, a few, uh, we all head to the beach. And um, now, look, I, I did take swimming lessons when I was a kid. I did the whole swim to the bottom of the pool and pick up the pennies off the floor. Uh, but I would not say that I am a strong swimmer. It is definitely, I I mean, I just never could figure out how to kick with both feet at the same time. And so uh, I end up using my arms a lot. And um, and so instead of it looking like swimming, it mostly looks like I'm just fighting drowning. Um, I'm sure it's like one of those things like, is that guy okay? Or like, should we get the lifeguard? Um, But but anyway, all that to say, I'm just, I'm not a strong swimmer. And so when we get there, the the guys, you you know, maybe you don't know. Ladies, let me fill you in. When, When guys get together... Um, they come up with really dumb things, and, and it's like it gets really competitive and weird and, and whatever else. But, uh, but these guys, they decide, let's swim out to that buoy, the one that says no swimming beyond this point, uh, where the water's way over your head. And uh, let's just swim out there and tread water for a while and hang out. Well, I knew that I was not going to be able to do that. And so I uh, just swam out to where I could still touch. Um, but, but one of the other guys who was sort of in the same boat as me decided to go. Well, he gets out to the buoy and immediately realizes, well, I'm not going to be able to sustain this. And so he immediately turns around and starts swimming back towards me. Well, um, I, I'm watching all of this. And, and as he's starting to try to come back, he really begins to struggle. And uh, I see him, he, he, you know, he's starting to go under a little bit. He's starting to take in some water. And so uh, I begin to, to swim out towards him. And uh, as, I, as I get to him, I just see this, like, really freaked out and panicked look because he is... He's really struggling. He's gassed out. And so um, by God's grace, I somehow was able to help get him back towards to, to where he could touch. And, and it was one of those really weird moments. I don't know if you've had one of those moments where um, you're sort of bonded in that moment. You know, I didn't really know this guy. Uh, he was, again, a friend of mine's friend. And uh, it, was, it was one of those weird things for like years later when we'd bump into each other, it'd kind of be like, hey, you remember that time I almost drowned? And I'd be like, yeah, that was, that was weird, you know? And, and, uh, but it, like really, it was deep down, both of him and I knew just how uh, scary and how desperate that situation really was. And um, 
Now look, I, I realize telling a story like that is somewhat self-aggrandizing, but uh, that's not why I told it, because if anything, it was maybe stupid of me to try to go help him, because I could have, you know, we both could have ended up drowned, but again, by God's grace, we, we were able to make it. Um, but the reason I share it is, is simply because for me, it was one of the most uh, real-life, desperate situations that I've been involved in. Again, if you could have seen the look in his eyes as he was uh, starting to go under a little bit and just to begin to panic, it was really quite haunting. And so uh, perhaps some of you have been in a similar desperate situation yourself. And today as we look at our passage, what we're going to see is we're going to meet two very different but equally desperate people approach Jesus. And the reason that they approach Jesus is because they have some amount of faith that he is able to help them in their state of desperation. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 40. Uh, if you need to borrow a pew Bible, it's found on page 866. But before we dive in, let me, uh, let me just open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful we can meet here and gather together in your presence. I just ask, Lord, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. Pray that you would just show us wonderful things out of your word, Lord. And that I pray that all of us would leave here differently than when we came in. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and jump in here, starting in verse 40. Uh, it says this. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. All right, let's stop there. I know it's only one verse in, but let's, let's reset the context in the scene a little bit. So last week, Pastor Nick walked us through the story of Jesus calming the storm and also the story of the healing of the, the demoniac man. And if you remember what Nick told us is that uh, the, the healing of the demoniac man took place in a Gentile region that was on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. And one of the things that we saw there at the end of that story was that after Jesus had delivered the man by casting the demons into the pigs, uh, the townspeople gathered around, they, they came to where he was, and they begged him to leave. And, and it was very interesting that they did that, and, and even though they had witnessed this incredible miracle, because of fear, it tells us in the passage they were afraid, because of fear they rejected Jesus and they asked him to leave. And so since Jesus isn't out to force himself onto anybody, uh, particularly people who do not uh, want him or, or honor, uh, who honor him, he honors their request by getting back into the boat with his disciples, and he returns back to the region of Galilee. Now, most likely because of how Luke is talking about this, the city he specifically returns to is the city of Capernaum, which, as we've already said before in this series, is a kind of home base for Jesus' ministry. And so here he is, he's returning home, and it tells us there in verse 40 that when he gets back, a crowd is already there waiting for him, and they welcome him as he returns. And so even what we see here in, these opening, in this opening verse is that Luke is literally contrasting their response to Jesus to that of the townspeople of the demoniac who asked him to leave. You see, because at the end of the day, there really are only two responses you can have to Jesus. Either you can reject him and ask him to leave you alone, or you can receive and welcome him. And one of the main contributing factors in how you will respond is, is, is your ability to recognize your need for him. And again, what we're going to see this morning is that uh, the two people we meet recognize their incredible need for Jesus. They were keenly aware of their desperation, and therefore they welcomed him 
and received him. And so let's keep reading here. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Okay, so what we see here is that one of the first people to meet Jesus as he steps off the boat is this man named Jairus. Now, Jairus isn't there simply to welcome Jesus, to say, hello, hey, Jesus, we're glad you're back. No, Jairus is there because he is in a desperate situation. And the reason he's in a desperate situation is because his only daughter, who's about 12 years old, is very sick and she's dying. And so because of that, Jairus has fought his way through the crowd and he has thrown himself at Jesus' feet and he begs and implores him to come to his house to heal his daughter. Now, I don't know how many of you dads in here have daughters, but, but if you don't, let me tell you something. Daughters change you. Like, like, once you have daughters, you are just not the same person anymore. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I have two boys, and I love them and, and enjoy them and all of that. But, but with my daughters, I will straight up get violent on someone over them. I mean, it, I, I don't, they just sort of pull out of you this strong sense to defend and to look after them. However, though, they also pull out of you some things that are not so great. Um, <laughs> like they can actually talk you into stuff that you never thought you would do. Uh, for example, a couple years ago, in a, a real moment of weakness, my uh, oldest daughter Miriam talked us into getting her a pet bunny rabbit for her birthday. Uh, now look, I don't like pets, I don't appreciate them, and I certainly don't want something annoying like a bunny rabbit. And yet, all it took was her looking at me with her adorable little hazel eyes and saying, Daddy, can I please have a bunny for my birthday? And next thing I know, I'm driving her to the Humane Society to buy a rescued rabbit named John. Uh, originally, we adopted Sean, uh, his twin brother, but Sean didn't make it through uh, the vasectomy surgery, or the, uh, not the vasectomy, the whatever, well, maybe, I don't know. Either way, Sean died, and we ended up with John. And now here I am, and I'm spending money on this thing. In fact, uh, just the other day, we bought him a leash and a harness, uh, because apparently you can walk a rabbit like you walk a dog, and so... All that to say, daughters change you. <laughs> and if you have them, you know what I'm talking about. And so here is this guy. Why don't you try to put yourself in his shoes? Here's this guy, and his only daughter is desperately sick, and she is dying. And so he fights his way through a crowd to get to Jesus, to be the first one to meet him as he gets off the boat. And says there at the end of verse 42 that, that, that uh, Jesus goes with him. But as they're going, the crowd is pressing around him as they begin to walk. And so, you know, clearly this crowd doesn't understand the law about pulling over for emergency vehicles. You know, they're, they're, they're pressing around Jesus. Um, this would literally, I, the way I picture it is Jesus is like an ambulance on his way to a desperate scene. And people are kind of hindering him so, so, somewhat. And so let's see what happens. Look at verse 43. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, and she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Okay, so here is Jesus. He's walking with this man named Jairus. Uh, because of this desperate situation, he's headed toward Jairus' house. And yet, this, as he's going, a woman sneaks up behind him, and she reaches out, and she touches the fringe of his garment. 
And the reason she does that is because, as Luke tells us there, she has a medical problem. In fact, she has a chronic medical problem. She has been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, and and most likely this was some sort of uterine issue. Now, we don't know for sure exactly what her problem was, but, but what we do know is that she has spent all of her money, her life savings on doctors trying to get better, and yet nothing has worked. In fact, Luke says there that she could not be healed by anyone. In Mark's account in his gospel of this story, in Mark 5, he says this, She had suffered under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so needless to say, like Jairus, uh, this woman is in a desperate situation and she is desperate for Jesus to help. And she has just enough faith to believe that, that, that if she just comes to Jesus... And that if she's just able to get to him and to touch his clothes, that, that if she can do that, she just might be healed. And she is. In fact, she's instantly healed. Luke says, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Mark says it like this, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And so the woman is healed. Everything's good. She hasn't even bothered Jesus. She hasn't slowed him down. And no one knows about it, right? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Okay, so here is Jesus. Again, he's walking towards Jairus' house, and, he, and this, this incident happens, and he yells out, who touched me? And everyone's like, not me. I, you know, I didn't do it. And finally, Peter speaks up to try to talk some sense into Jesus like he often did. And, and, and you know, as I think about this scene, it could almost be compared to a, a celebrity on the red carpet uh, turning to a group of reporters and saying, who took my picture? It's like, well, duh, we all took your picture, right? That's what we're here to do. And, and, and that's sort of what's going on, and it seem, it's seemingly ridiculous. And so, again, Peter pipes up, and, and he's essentially like, come on, Jesus, This is silly. You're surrounded by a huge crowd, and they're pressing in on you. Of course, people are touching you. And yet, clearly, Jesus doesn't think he's being ridiculous. In fact, he is well aware that someone has not only uh, rubbed up against him or unintentionally bumped into him, but rather he knows that someone has intentionally reached out and touched him, and that as a result, healing has taken place. And the reason he knows that is because he can sense that power has gone out from him. I don't know exactly what Jesus means by that or, or what that would have felt like, but, but the way I kind of pictured it, it's almost like if you had a live uh, electrical wire that was bouncing around and it was hitting all of these rubber objects and nothing significant was happening, and then all of a sudden the live wire hit something metal and there was a discharge, there was a surge of power. It's like, I don't know, that's helped me to think about it that way. Jesus has somehow sensed that that power has gone out of him, that there's been a transfer. And so again, he calls out, who touched me? Now look at verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so the woman realizes that she's not going to be able to get away with snatching a secret healing from Jesus And so she finally steps forward and falls at his feet and admits that that she is the one who touched him. 
And that when she did, she was instantly healed. And so I don't know exactly what's going through her mind in terms of how she thinks Jesus is going to respond here. If I had to guess, I would most likely say that, that she was probably very scared. She probably thinks that she's going to get in trouble. I mean, after all, given the, the nature of her disease, she was considered ceremonially unclean according to Old Testament law. And because of that, she wasn't supposed to be anywhere near people, let alone touching them. And she certainly wasn't supposed to be touching a famous rabbi. And so again, because of that, she's probably thinking Jesus is going to chew her out or, or yell at her or shame her in some way. And yet what we see is that his response couldn't be more opposite from that. I mean, he just turns to her and he gently says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In fact, literally what the Greek says there is that, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, in putting it that way, Jesus is not only affirming to her that she is in fact restored from her disease, but he's also letting her know that she has been restored to God. Again, he says, your faith has saved you. I mean, by the very fact that he even calls her daughter, and as far as we know, this is the only time he referenced and looked at someone and called them daughter, he is implying that this woman is a part of God's family. Again, I just want you to understand the significance of that. I mean, you have to, to, to understand that. You have to understand what her life would have been like these last 12 years. Again, because her, her disease involved discharging blood, she was ceremonially unclean, which meant that she had to live in isolation. She had to be separate from the rest of society. I mean, this poor lady probably hadn't been to synagogue in at least 12 years. And not only that, because of the nature of it, it would have been a very embarrassing disease. And she most likely would have uh, felt that, that people were looking down on her and they would have assumed that God was punishing her with this disease because of some sort of sin in her life. And yet, here is Jesus. And he's publicly announced, he's, he's making her publicly announce what has happened to her. And at first glance, this might seem really insensitive of Jesus. But actually, this is an act of his grace. By having her publicly testify to what's going on, he's restoring her not only physically, but he's also restoring her socially and spiritually, and he's doing it in front of her entire community. You see, not only is her physical pain being healed, but so is her emotional pain as well. That's why one, one commentator wrote this about this. He said, Jesus does not simply dismiss the woman when he tells her to go in peace, but bestows on her the peace of restoration, well-being, and salvation. She, too, is a daughter. Another one said it like this. He said, it's not enough to simply give her healing. No, he wants to give her himself. And so, no, Jesus is not being insensitive. In fact, he is being very gracious. But in case we get too wrapped up in this scene here, we have to remember that this is all taking place at a very inconvenient moment. Because, again, if you remember, Jesus is on his way to go help a very sick little girl and so time is of the essence and so let's keep going to see what happens look at verse 49 while he was still speaking someone from the ruler's house came and said your daughter is dead do not trouble the teacher anymore but Jesus on hearing this answered him do not fear only believe and she will be well okay so what we see here is that this little detour has led to a very tragic event I mean, yes, this uh, poor woman had real needs and was desperate, but her condition was chronic. 
it was not critical in the same way as Jairus' daughter. I mean, this would, this would almost be like an ambulance on its way uh, to a, a very serious car accident. And so it's driving there, but then all of a sudden it, it pulls over because it sees someone throwing up because of a chronic migraine. I mean, don't get me wrong. Chronic migraines are, are, are awful. They're just not nearly as critical as a, a, a serious car accident. Or it would almost be like when I was uh, swimming out to that guy, if, if on the way to, to get out to him, I, I noticed that a little boy was being bullied by someone, and I, I detoured, I'm like, well, let me go talk, or, you know, deal with the bully situation. I mean, getting bullied is awful. It's just not nearly as critical in nature as someone who is actively drowning. And so I don't know about you, but if I was Jairus, I would be super frustrated and angry at both Jesus and the woman. I mean, the bottom line was Jairus was in line first. He got to Jesus first. And his situation is much more desperate in nature than hers. And yet Jesus has stopped to have a conversation with this woman. And as a result of the delay, his daughter has died. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, he paints the scene like this. Imagine Jairus' anxiety during all of this. The disciples' irritation. Jesus' patience and composure. This woman with a chronic condition is getting attention instead of the little girl who has an acute condition. Jesus chooses to stop and talk with the woman who has just been healed. This makes no sense. It is absolutely irrational. In fact, it's worse than that. It's malpractice. If these two were in the same emergency room, any doctor who treated the woman first and let the little girl die would be uh, sued. Jesus is behaving like such a reckless doctor. Jairus and the disciples must be thinking, what are you doing? Don't you understand the situation? Hurry or it'll be too late. The little girl needs help from you now, Jesus. Hurry, Jesus, hurry. But Jesus will not be hurried. You see, at the end of the day, one of the things that you and I are going to have to come to grips with in the Christian life is this. God's timing is not our timing. God's ways are not our ways, and yet, it's in that place of waiting, it's in that place of confusion and doubt that God is calling you and he's calling me to trust him. You see, Jesus here in turning to Jairus and saying, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well, Jesus, what he's doing is he's giving Jairus an opportunity to trust him even more. You see, by the very fact that Jairus approached Jesus in the first place to come heal his daughter, Jairus is exercising faith and trust in Jesus. And yet what we see here is that Jesus is wanting to take him a little bit deeper. He's inviting G uh, Jairus to go a little bit further in his faith journey. And so what does Jairus do? Does he walk away disappointed or does he hang on in faith? Well, look at verse 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Okay, so what we see here is that Jairus does, in fact, hang on in faith. He continues to walk with Jesus towards his house. 
And as they get there, there's a crowd already gathered, and they are weeping and mourning for his daughter. In fact, part of the crowd uh, most likely was made up of professional mourners, which I know for us is a very bizarre concept. But, but during this time period, there would literally be uh, people who were hired to come to a funeral just to be there to weep and to mourn for the dead. And it's most likely those professional mourners who are the ones who laugh at Jesus when he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. You see, these professional mourners are probably thinking, look, dude, we've seen a lot of dead people in our lives, and that little girl is definitely dead. And yet Jesus is like, you know, forget these people. And he goes and he takes just the, the, the little girl's parents and Peter, James, and John, and he shuts the door. And he walks over to her, her little dead body, and he grabs her by the hand. And he says, child, arise. And the thing that's so cool about what Jesus does here is that uh, Mark in his gospel, he leaves in the original Aramaic. And Jesus says, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. But the thing about that word Talitha, it's a, it's a term of endearment. It would be like a mother calling her child honey. And kumai, again, it just simply means arise or, or wake up. And so Jesus here, literally like a parent, who is gently waking up a child for school, he says, honey, it's time to get up now. And through that statement, that gentle, loving statement, he raises her from the dead. As we step back and as we think about uh, this story and this passage as a whole, I want to just take a moment here and compare and contrast the two main characters that we've seen, both Jairus and the woman. And so first, let me start by just contrasting them. Probably the most obvious difference is that one is male and the other is female. Not only that, though, but Jairus isn't just, uh, isn't just any male. He's actually a very prominent and most likely wealthy male in their uh, city. Again, the text tells us there that he is the, a ruler of the synagogue. And so he is in a position of honor and authority. Whereas the woman, she is unnamed. We don't even, we don't even get her name. and She's just called the woman. And so she's unnamed, and she's living in isolation again because of her disease. As well, what we know about her is that she is extremely poor. Again, because the text tells us that she had spent all that she had trying to get well. It also uh, tells us there that, that, uh, that, that no one could heal her. And so uh, what we see here is that as we contrast them, what we have on the one hand is a very prominent, wealthy male leader. And on the other hand, we have an unclean, unnamed, sick poor woman and so certainly as you contrast them there are some major differences however though if you uh if you look at them together there are some striking similarities for example both Jairus and this woman are both desperate for Jesus they both are facing a very difficult situation and they both come to Jesus for help as well what we've just seen is that both of them are exercising incredible faith and trust in Jesus you see, the woman, when uh, she believed that, that Jesus could heal her, even though no one up until this point had been able to, and yet she was able to hang on in faith and just say, if I, if I can just touch him, I know that I'll be made well. You see, both doctors and medicine had failed her, but not only did they fail her, they actually took all of her money, and as Mark tells us, they made her worse. They actually made her sicker. I don't even know if that's a word, but sicker, you know? And yet, she had faith and trust. She had faith that, that if only she could touch his garment, she would be healed. As well with Jairus, what we see is that, that he had faith and trust that, that he could come to Jesus and ask. 
But even after she died, what we see is that he continued to trust. He continued to walk with Jesus towards her help. And so again, both of these characters in the story, they both exercised trust and faith in Jesus. And as a result, both of them were blessed by him. But not only were they blessed, both of them received more than what they even asked for. You see, this woman, she just wanted to be healed physically. And she wanted to do it in a way that was totally unnoticed and undetected. But instead, what Jesus does is he gives her much more than that. Again, as we've already said, Jesus wanted to heal her not only physically, but he also wanted to heal her socially and spiritually. And so she gets more than what she bargained for, more than what she asked for. Now with Jairus, what we see with him is that all he wanted was his, his daughter to be healed. But instead, he gets the privilege of seeing his daughter raised from the dead. I mean, think about that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing Jesus walk over to your child who's dead and just grab her by the hand and saying, wake up, child, get up. I mean, this little girl is one of only three people that the gospel writers record getting raised by Jesus. And so again, both of them get blessed by Jesus in ways that were far greater than they expected. Now, another uh, striking comparison, and you probably picked up on it, it gets pointed out whenever this story is looked at, is, is the number 12. Again, it tells us there that the little girl was 12 years old when she was dying, whereas the woman, it says, was sick for 12 years. And so literally, when, when this little girl was, was being born, this woman's disease started. Now, as I thought about the number 12, 12 years, the thing about that is that 12 years can either feel like a really long time, it can feel like eternity, or it can feel like a really short amount of time. You see, if you're the woman and you're in the middle of suffering for 12 years, that most likely would have felt like an eternity. And the reason for that is that for those of you who have had uh, intense seasons of suffering that have been prolonged, you know that, that when you're in the midst of that, time really begins to slow down. Every day you're, you wake up and you're reminded of the pain and the sorrow you're facing. And you're always feeling like nothing is ever going to change. It's never going to get better. And so because of that, time slows down. And it in particular slows down, especially when you feel like God is being distant and silent in those moments. When you're in that place of suffering and God just feels like he's a million miles away. You just feel like he doesn't care. In those moments, it's such, uh, you're in such a hard place. And personally, I, I haven't been in that kind of a place a lot in my life, but I, I did have a season a while back where I was really struggling with depression and anxiety, and I was having trouble sleeping. And even though that season of my life only lasted about eight months, it actually felt like eight years. And for a large portion of it, God seemed really distant and silent. And that just only added to the pain and the confusion. And so again, depending on what's going on in your life, 12 years can seem like a really long time. However, on the other hand, for Jairus and his daughter, 12 years most likely would have felt way too short. I'm sure for them, they felt like the time went way too fast. I mean, I have uh, four children, and, and my oldest is eight, and I, I can't tell you how fast these last eight years have gone. I mean, those, with, uh, those of you with kids, you know the saying is true, that, that with kids, it's, it's long days and short years. And I, I know that Faith and I can certainly relate to that. And because of that, I, I, I can't even imagine what Jairus must have felt like uh, that, that when he was losing his daughter. I mean, those 12 years would have felt way too short. And yet, it's into both of those painful situations. The one where 12 years felt too long and the one where 12 years felt too short that Jesus entered in. 
And he brought about healing and restoration. And so as we close here, I just want to offer a few thoughts about this passage as it relates to us. And to do so, I really like what one commentator said in in summing up the story. He wrote this. Everything about this double miracle points to the need to trust God's power, presence, and timing over ultimate human well-being. You see, I like that because here's the reality. All of us, myself included, are going to have many moments in our lives where we find ourselves in some pretty desperate circumstances. In fact, maybe some of you this morning are in that place right now. And if not, you, you eventually will be. Because as Pastor Nick said last weekend, and commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus was talking about building a foundation, he didn't say, if the storms come. He said, when the storms come. You and I are going to have storms and difficulties in our lives. And yet, what last week's passage teaches us, and what this week's passage teaches us, is that Jesus Christ has authority over everything. Last week, we saw that he has authority over nature and the spiritual world, over demons. And this week, we have seen that Jesus has authority over disease and death. Jesus Christ has authority over it all. And so the question for you and the question for me is, do we trust him? Do we have faith in his power, in his presence, and in his timing in our lives? Do you believe that Jesus can heal you? Do you believe that he has the power to deliver you from whatever desperate situation you are currently in? Do you have faith in him that no matter what you are going through, and when you are going through it, that his presence is with you? That even when he feels silent and distant, that even in those moments, Jesus' promise that he will never leave you or forsake you is still true. That even when he feels silent, he's still there. And that actually maybe he's trying to speak to you through the silence. That part of what he's doing there is he's trying to get you to slow down. He's trying to get you to lean in. You see, do you want to know why God often speaks to us in a still, small voice? I think he does that because in order for us to hear, we have to lean in. We have to get close. You see, if you know Jesus... God's presence is always present. However, though, we're not always aware of it or tuned in. You see, one of the, the pictures as I studied this story this week that, that, that so stirred my affections for the Lord is that when Jairus was in his most darkest, most desperate moment of his life, he had Jesus walking with him side by side. And that even when uh, the, Jesus stopped to talk to the woman, I'm sure in that moment, Jairus began to lose sight of the fact that he was still in Jesus' presence. I'm sure that, that, that when the messenger came and delivered the tragic news that his daughter had died, that, that Jairus even more so began to lose sight of the fact that Jesus was still there. He hadn't left him. And yet, it was in that exact moment, that moment of intense fear, that Jesus looked at Jairus and said to him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. He said, I think one of the reasons Jesus said that is because fear is the enemy of faith. And sometimes we let fear keep us from his presence, from keep us from being aware of his presence. We let fear keep us from hearing his voice, and yet it's actually faith that frees up the power of God. Faith is about trust, and trust is about character and abilities. 
And then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you have the perfect combination of character and power. And therefore, he is worthy of our trust and our faith in him. However, though, the thing that you and I have to accept, though, is and trust in is this last part of the quote, and that is his timing. You see, here's the thing. The woman with the blood issue, she suffered horribly for 12 long years. And for Jairus, he had to deal with the fact that, that Jesus uh, decided to stop and talk to this woman, that, and that as a result, his daughter died. And so again, you and I, we have to wrestle with this, and we have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus' timing is not always our timing, and that there are seasons of waiting and seasons of testing. And that ultimately we have to accept that God is sovereign over our lives. And that in that he sees things that you and I do not see. You see, God sees the beginning from the end. We're, we're limited to the time and space that we are in, but he sees it all from the start into the finish. And because of that, his timing often looks different than ours. And I know that that can be frustrating, and sometimes that's really painful, and yet it's in that that God is asking us to trust him. Again, I really like Tim uh, Keller's perspective on God's timing in our lives. He, again, writes this in King's Cross. So often it seems, uh, so often if God seems to be unconscionable delaying his grace and committing malpractice in our lives, it's because there is some crucial information that we do not yet have, some essential variable that's unavailable to us. If I could sit down with you and listen to the story of your life, it may well be that I would join in saying, I can't understand why God isn't coming through. I don't know why he is delaying. Believe me, I know how you feel. So I want to be sensitive in the way that I put this. But when I look at the delays of God in my own life, I realize that a great deal of my consternation has been rooted in arrogance. I complained to Jesus saying, Okay, you're the eternal son of God. You've lived for all of eternity. You created the universe. But why would, I, but why would you know any better than I do and how my life should be going? We're not God. But we have such delusions of grandeur that our self-righteousness and arrogance sometimes have to be knocked out of our hearts by God's delays. Right now, is God delaying something in your life? Are you ready to give up? Are you impatient with him? There may be a crucial factor that you do not yet have access to. The answer, as with Jairus, is to trust Jesus. And I would submit to you this morning the reason that you and I can trust Jesus, just beyond the fact that he's big, just beyond the fact that he created the universe and he is all-knowing, the reason you and I can trust him is that because on the cross, he demonstrated his goodness and his love for us. And in his resurrection, he demonstrated his power and his ability to restore. You see, as I just said, you have to trust in God's timing. And for some of us, God's timing may mean that we're not going to get healed into the life to come. But what we do know is that because of the cross and because of the resurrection, Jesus Christ will restore all. I've been, uh, I shared this verse with a friend of mine this week who's in a little bit of an intense season of suffering. And he said something, I, I just asked how it was going, and he said, well, uh, I'm hanging in there, and, and there's still a lot of ground to take. 
And I, I shared with him this verse that came to my mind out of uh, 1 Samuel at the end. If you remember the story there, we taught through Samuel a while back. But, but in that story, uh, David goes off to, to battle. And while he's off to battle, the Amalekites come in and they steal all of their stuff and take their wives and their children. And, you know, David's so distraught and his men are talking about killing him. And he, he strengthens himself in the Lord. And then the next thing we, you know, through a series of events, David and his men uh, run these Amalekites down, and there's a verse that says, and David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And what, what we see there is that, that Jesus Christ, he is the greater David, and whatever has been taken in your life, whatever through sin or through uh, devastation and tragedy of living in a desperate world, what we know for sure is that Jesus, the greater David, he will one day recover all. But you have to trust that. You may have to be in that place of waiting throughout your life, but you need to trust and to believe that Jesus Christ will recover all. And so Limerth Road Church, I just want to encourage you. Let's be a church that puts our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be a church that puts our trust in his goodness and in his power. And let's be a church that's, that's not afraid to pray big prayers. Let's be a church that pursues his presence even in the midst of suffering. And let's be a church that trusts in his timing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story. Jesus, thank you that, that you, as you lived your life, Lord, you lived out a non-anxious presence before people. Lord, you didn't let other people's anxiety and their, their fear transfer to you. Instead, Lord, you allowed your peace and your presence to transfer to them. Lord, thank you for just this picture of your, your kindness and your gentleness. Lord, your love for this woman who was in, the, in an intense season of pain. God, thank you for this picture of your, your loving care for Jairus, Lord, that, that you raised his daughter from the dead. And thank you, God, that your power and your presence and your timing are still relevant to our lives. And so, Father, I just ask that in the name of Jesus, you would help us as a body, as a church, to trust you. God, that in our journeys of faith, we would go, like Jairus, just a little bit deeper. That, Lord, when you say, when you say do not fear, only believe, and she will be well, Lord. That, that when you look at us and you say, uh, do not fear, that we would be able to trust you. We would be able to believe in your goodness. We'd be able to believe in your power. And we'd be able to trust in your timing, Lord, that one day you will recover all. And so we ask that you would do that, Lord. You would do that work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.